Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello Trojan fans and welcome to episode number 139 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is October 13th, 2010. We've got a great show for you this week on the podcast. Again, we are swamped with your questions, voicemail, and email questions. We will try to get to each and every one of those talking about USC's loss to Stanford on the last play of the game. Coach, you know, We have Coach Harvey Hyde in the first segment and uh, we're going to talk with him, but Lane Kiffin made an interesting comment. USC lost four games in their 100-year history or whatever it is on the last play of the game. And in the last seven days, USC lost in the last play of the game twice. So it was kind of a rough couple of weeks for Lane Kiffin during his first year as USC's head coach. And we got a lot of questions about the game and what's going on with defense. We will try to get to all of those. But as we talked about before, we have Coach Harvey Hyde in the first segment. We're going to get all of his insight, what he thinks about what's been going on. Coach, how are you doing, sir? Ryan, I'm doing great, buddy. It's, uh, it's been a long couple of weeks, but I certainly have a different feeling than I had after the Washington game than I have now after the Stanford game. And I'm sure that the questions that we have from all of the listeners out there will pertain to some of that, and I'll be able to get to some of those uh, answers and I'd rather answer their questions and just talk. So, Ryan, why don't we get started? That sounds good. Before we get going, just want to thank Southern California Tickets, sctickets.com. Check them out on the web, or if you want to call them, 1-800-888-7287. Of course, USC has California this weekend. If you need tickets for that game or any upcoming game, anything going on, concerts, board events, theater, give sctickets.com a call. And Coach, you mentioned all the questions. We do have a bunch. Let's go to a voicemail question first, and this one is from Lance. Uh, up in Seattle, and he had a question about, and I think a lot of USC fans do, it's a pretty hot topic, what was going on with the clock at the end of the game? Here you go. Yeah, Lance from Seattle. Well, you know, a uh, question on the clock at the end of the game, uh, when they didn't wind it, I was sitting and watching that game, and I was like, are you kidding me? Why am I not winding it after that measurement? And I was just curious if Barkley should have stepped away from center to ask the referee. I know if Kiffin called the timeout, they probably stopped the clock. But I totally didn't get that, why the clock didn't run. And I know that uh, uh, Kiffin's logged a complaint, but I know the, watching the game, you could see the clock, he started to wind up as they were getting ready to snap the ball. But it's just ridiculous. And I know Stanford had timeouts to maybe use them to stop the clock, but everybody knew if Stanford got the ball back, it was going to end up like that. So just curious on what your thoughts of Barkley or Kiffin should have done to get the refs to notice that. Uh, thanks again, and been a brutal season, man. I hope we turn it around. Bye. Well, I tell you, I didn't mean to interrupt him there, uh, but um, no, that's 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 a true fact there, and it certainly does possibly make a difference in the outcome of the game. You never do know, and the you know you can file a complaint, but that isn't going to change anything. That's something that happens, and sometimes it's mysteriously happens when you're always on the road. And it always seems to go against you. I noticed it a couple of times during the game, even at the end of the game. I don't know why the guy was stopped, was uh, not stopping it there or letting it run for Stanford down with them when they wanted to call timeout there with about four seconds to go. So uh, I don't have the answer for that, why uh, the time was being kept like that. I also understand, too, and I have not seen this, but on the kickoff, too, uh, when SC scored and they kicked off, the guy that received the ball had run about 15 yards before the clock even started moving. Now, I can't, I can't justify that because I didn't see the clock or follow that, but people have told me that. Now, that's another indication of seconds there that were ticking, that were, should have been ticking away uh, to help SC in that final drive. But, you know, it, it, it comes down, you can look at clocks and you can try to find mistakes and you can try to talk about excuses and so on on the clock and so on. When SC scored with a minute and two seconds or whatever was on the clock, at that time I, I was sitting next to my wife watching the game like you people were unless you were at the game. And uh, I said they scored too early. They scored They scored too fast. Uh, they, I mean, uh, Stanford's going to move the football, get the old position, and 
And remember, they didn't have to score a touchdown. They had one of the top field goal kickers in the country that's up for the Lou Groser Award. It was He was 9 for 9, and now he's 15 for 15 over the last year and uh, and a half. So, you know, uh, all they needed was a field goal, and they got good field position. They moved the football. Uh, uh, they stopped them, and I think the penalty there on that situation really was a difficult penalty. I mean, it was a penalty that I'm not going to say cost them the football game, but, you know, it gave them momentum, a 15-yard gain from there. And, you know, if they had to run two or three plays to make 15 yards, a lot of things could happen. First of all, you know time's going to go off the clock. Also, there could possibly be a fumble or an interception or an air or a sack, which could give them more or better field position and so on. But with that penalty, they didn't have, they didn't, no time came off the clock. So they, you know, made that one catch over the middle and ran to the ball to the outside, and all of a sudden they're down there in field goal range and ran the clock down and beat SC. You know, it all comes down to being able to stop somebody in that type of situation, and they weren't able to do that. So we can look for all of the excuses and so on. Why? Uh, but if if you have to worry about how many times, the, how many clicks came off the clock, it ticks. Yeah, that's that's good for twelve. 13-12 game or something like that. But when it's up there and people are getting as many yards as what they're getting on USC, you know, that's not the problem. So I'm not I'm not saying it isn't something that you should, you know, find out about and why it happened, but that's not the real problem. All right, Lance, thanks for that one. Uh, let's jump over to Ed, coach. Uh, he's in San Diego. He says, I hear a lot about how the linebackers and DBs are not tackling or out of position. When is someone going to point out that the defensive line is struggling. Our line has 11 sacks in five games. In the bend-don't-break scheme, the defensive line has, been, has to be able to put more pressure on the QB than that. That's one thing people forget about our past defenses. The lines were much more dominant. What do you think about that? No, I agree. Uh, I, I'm not sure that uh, these down four players are living up to what everybody expected them to live up to be. Uh, I don't see them penetrating. I don't see them putting pressure. I don't see them uh, running by people. I don't see the quickness in the defensive line that's been there before. And I don't see any type of containment whatsoever to the outside. Uh, people seem to roll outside of them anytime they want or run outside of them anytime they want. There's no contain whatsoever or or run up the middle on them. Uh, uh, they lose contain as far as on pass rush and everything else. So, no, I don't think they're dumb. I don't think they intimidate anybody. I don't think they have to double-team anybody, to be honest with you. I think they can just draw back, and center can look one way or the other and help with the guy that's coming to the gap and tackle getting a good position from the outside on the defensive end and whatever they need to do and, and pass block. I don't see anybody overpowering anybody, bull rushing or outquicking anybody. Uh, so, uh, so uh, yes, I agree with that 100%. But that isn't the only reason either. It's a combination of a lot of things. That's just part of the problems that are going on on defense. Uh, you, you can point the finger to a lot of different areas. That definitely is one of the areas. I don't think there's a, a Patterson or, or some of the people that have played there before with uh, the type of intensity that's there. Uh, I don't see the intensity in the defensive line. I, I don't see the overpowering of the defensive line and and I think that people have been able to as you see run on the defensive line or or pass at ease uh, when they're ending up what with the 100th 100th ranked defense in the country and 116th ranked defense in the country and pass defense well that's all part of it you don't get the rush uh, you don't get the pass rush you don't get the stopping of the rush so yeah I would say that the defensive line is not what it used to be or should be and it's, I mean, there's been a lot of injuries there too, coach. I mean, they're, they've been banged up and, uh, you know, not having Wes Horton in there. I, I, I do think they've played pretty well. Maybe they're not up to the standards of some of the other games before, but it's been, it's been tough. They're thin, uh, you know, and I, you know, having guys like Nick Perry, that one bright spot for this defense, Lane Kiffin was asked yesterday at practice. He mentioned Nick Perry right off because he's been hobbled. He's still playing through pain and getting out there and doing whatever he can to contribute for this team. And Jarrell Casey really has played really well out there, I thought. So, yeah, there's been some there's been some up and down play, I guess you could say, on the line. Well, I agree with that. Uh, you know, Perry uh, Perry used to stand out. He, you don't even know Perry's on the field anymore. You don't know anybody's on the field anymore. You tell me who is dominating on the defensive line out there, and and uh, I will I will certainly I will certainly. Uh, 
credit them. <laughs> I just don't. I just don't think that uh, any phase of the defense currently right now is playing well, either by confusion or getting outplayed. So, uh, I think it's a combination of all areas. Personally. All right. Well, let's uh, go to Nick. He is a Marshall School of Business person. So, Nick, uh, good job there. Uh, do you? He wants to know. Do you think it is time to man up? On defense, these zones aren't working. Love the podcast. And I, I think a lot of people had this kind of sentiment, Coach, where just get up and start playing someone, play fast, and, and, and hit somebody hard and, and, and be aggressive. I think that's what a lot of fans kind of want to see right now. Well, I'll tell you what. You certainly uh, have recruited four- and five-star defensive backs, but they aren't playing like that, okay? They're playing uh, out of position. They're getting a lot of pass interference uh, penalties. They're not tackling well and so on. So, yeah, if, if you teach the ten- techniques correct and if your defensive back is equal or can play with a receiver, which they should be able to do and cover someone and they don't have all day to throw the football, I would say certainly let's let's play man. Let's get the man and at least know what we're doing and make it simple and go after people. If you're outmanned normally uh, on a defensive side of the football, you don't try to play straight up with them. You want to go after them. You want to cause them to make a mistake. You want to blitz them, throw them for losses. Uh, I would run something that maybe on every single play they didn't know what to expect. I would show different defenses. I would shift on the line of scrimmage. I would come. My linebackers would jump in and jump out. Uh, I, I would give them different looks so that they really didn't know what was coming and man up back there and hope you get a sack and you hope you throw off the rhythm of the offense. And uh, right now they're not getting any linebacker coverage at all in pass defense. So, you know, why if they're not covering anybody, why not blitz them? Well, and, of course, if someone breaks through the blitz, blitz it's going to be a, a big gainer when you're playing man because normally the defensive back has their back turned chasing the receiver down the field. So it could be a home run there as far as if somebody hits a quick trap on you and so on. But if you're not getting the linebacker play and you're not getting the push on the defensive line, then there's nothing wrong with trying to confuse people and make people understand you come after them in different ways and it slows down their preparation for you. Because how can it be, don't get me wrong when I say this, but how can you be criticized for changing right now? People are calling for it and people are saying, what, what's going to happen? How can it get much worse? So, you know, a few change-ups here and there really doesn't hurt anything. And a few chances doesn't hurt anything. And if you get a big sack in there once in a while, it brings a lot of a, a celebration with the defense because they've done something good. I mean, like that Gallipo penalty, believe me, that was just over-aggressive. Now, Chris is a great guy. Chris, didn't, Chris is a great football player. In fact, he played a great game coming into the game. It was just over-emotion, trying to, trying to make a big play to make something happen so USC could beat Stanford. And, he just was over-aggressive. So, you know, it's, you can't take the aggressiveness out of your football team. And you've got to take the handcuffs off of them. And you've got to take the handcuffs off the coaching staff. And you've got to let them run up and down the sideline and yell at a few people, including the officials at times. Right now it's trying to be, you know, be proper, you know. You've got a suit and tie on when you're coaching now. Like, not like we didn't used to wear those. But you got to sort of turn it loose, and and I think that's be something the defense would really look forward to doing. I agree, coach. And you know, I was talking to interesting. It was one of the offensive linemen uh, about a week or so ago. We were at, I was asking him some questions about. Uh, we did it for our war room feature on uscfootball.com. But what's it like when you're an offensive lineman? You're kind of down in that stance, and maybe the quarterback backs off and, and starts looking around and is trying to figure out what's going on with the defense and. The time is ticking down on the play clock, and the offensive linemen are still sticking there, and they're not moving. And how hard is that? And what they have to do with their assignments? He was uh, Butch Lewis was talking to me about it. And he was sharing some really interesting thoughts, and he said one of the things is if you miss your assignment, I mean, there's different things you can do. You can make a mental mistake. You can hear the play wrong. You can you know, your technique can be off, something like that. Because if you're going to do the wrong thing, he said you should do it at 100 miles an hour. So if I'm blocking the wrong guy, I want to plow him. You know, I just want to if. If you're doing the wrong thing, at least do it well, you know. And it doesn't seem like it seemed like that would apply on defense, where it's it's like they're they're not doing the right thing, but they're they're not performing it well either. If they if they miss where they're supposed to be, they're not taking care of the gaps that they're filling instead. You know what I mean? They're they're not playing at that hundred mile an hour thing that I think if you make a mistake, at least if you're playing fast, you can make something happen. 
No, I agree. And and when I watch him play, and and of course, you know, uh, I really have all the confidence in the world of the defensive staff. But when I watch him play, uh, when I watch Michael Morgan on coverages and so on, it looks like he's never played the game before. I mean, blocking the receiver, blocking the back down the field like that with his back to the court. I mean, that isn't just what you, you do that. You don't even do that in Pop Warner. And, and I wonder sometimes, what is it? Are they confused? Are they playing uh, with uh, not thinking about the game? And if they're thinking too much, they can't use their great athletic ability. So I say turn them loose, baby. And if you, even if you do the wrong thing and it works, it was a great play. That's what defense is all about. You got to play like you're mad, okay? You got to play with a lot of enthusiasm. You can't be thinking. You got to hit, and you got to get up, and and you got to get back in the huddle, and you got to celebrate. You know, you don't. They got three turnovers. That was tremendous. And I and I said on the pregame show, I don't know how many people listen to the pregame show. I said SC can beat Stanford, but Stanford's got to help them beat them. It's it. A key of this game is the offense scoring for Stanford or for USC. The defense coming up with some big plays, turnovers, which they did, and USC can beat them. The only thing that didn't happen is the defense could not slow down Stanford enough to win that football game on the road. But I think the team came together. I want people to understand that. I think they gained a lot of confidence from a loss, and that's a tough thing to say. But I did see a different football team, and I had a different attitude than I did after the Washington game. So, you know, I think there's, they can tweak a thing here or there and against Cal this week. I think they can beat Cal. We're not into that, but uh, let's move on. Okay. Uh, we want to go with – all right, I don't have it written down who this is. Sorry, but um, he wanted to elaborate on something that you said last week, Coach, in your closing comments with all the criticism USC has been getting on and off the field for six months. He appreciated the fact that, Coach, you talked about these kids really trying to do their best. Their players trying under extraordinary circumstances, and I guess a number of us, myself included, maybe forgot that these players are student-athletes with the student part coming first. So that was just a little comment for you, Coach, of appreciation there. Well, I certainly mean that. I, I, like I said last week, and I'll say it again for people who missed it, the biggest part of coaching I miss are the kids. I really do. I don't miss all the other stuff that goes on, okay? I love recruiting. I thought recruiting was fantastic. A lot of head coaches just hate recruiting. I loved it. I love going in the home and talking to parents and meeting the family and having dinner with them and, and telling them, well, until he commits tonight, I'm not leaving. Which bedroom do I stay in? I mean, I used to, 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 to feel this way or say, what are we watching on TV here tonight? I'm not, I'm not planning on going anywhere else. What do you guys normally watch on a Tuesday night? And, and getting to know families, even if we didn't get the kid. I loved it. And these kids are big bodies. They run fast. But they're kids. They're kids. And people forget that. And, and sometimes the way the media beats them up, it's really unfair. It's cruel. It's evil. I don't know what, how else to say it because they're doing their best. They're coaching their best. They're, you know, these coaches want to win. It's not like they don't want to win. And, you know, every team that plays USC wants to win, too. I mean, take this same scenario that happens every year. Washington beats SC, and what happens to them the next week? They lose. <laughs> it happens to almost every single team that plays SC because SC is their bowl game. And the next week they have trouble. It happened to Stanford last year. If you remember, Stanford beat SC, and the next week they lost. So, you know, remember, there's a lot of pressure on kids, and they're still kids. So, you know, when I say things about them – it's because I love them, and I want to see them get better, and I want to see them accomplish their goals. Remember, they got to walk around campus. they got girlfriends. they got parents, you know, and people see them and recognize them, and they got a lot of pride in themselves and so on and what they do and what happens at the game. So, you know, uh, to see people beat them up, and it's hard for me even to be critical because I know exactly how they feel. And if one of them are listening to this podcast, uh, people love you. Just keep playing hard, get your degree, and things good will happen for you. All right, Coach. Well, one last thing. This is from Tonks in Australia. He's a self-proclaimed number one USC fan in Australia. Thanks for the email from uh, way across the, the world there. Uh, he said about a year ago we had Dr. Casey Cooper on. Uh, she's like a sports psychologist, psychiatrist. Uh, gave us an insight into the stresses of big-time college ball. And with the coach bringing up last week that 
that we should all keep in mind when we critique these kids, which is kind of what we were talking about before. He wants to keep this offense going. He loves the dual um, backfield that they have going now and hopes the defense stays hungry and plays angry. He wanted to know, do you think that that's, you, do you think that the defense is going to start playing a little bit more angry? Well, I hope they do if they, if they quit thinking. And, you know, I think it'd be a good time to make a change on defense. I know Coach Kiffin in the paper says it's too late to change the defense's games we're doing, but I don't think it is. I think it'd be a great method. I hope he's saying that because he is changing it and just to throw off Cal. I really do. I'll tell you, I think it'd bring a lot of confidence to your defense by saying, hey, guys, we're going to go back and play what, what you've played before. We're going to be simple. We're going to get after people. We're going to run them down. We're going to cover. We're going to have fun on defense. We're going to have some fun and just make practice fun all week and jump around and get in different defenses and, and just let your talent play. Like the caller or a question a while ago, play some man, play some rover defense even, play some zone just to mix it up, do blitzes all over the field so they don't know what's coming, move around on the line of scrimmage, shift, the, shift your defense around. Uh, and you can have fun doing that. Jolie Dunn used to do that all the time. We, I used to, when I was coaching, he was the coach at New Mexico at that time. I had no idea what defense. He never ran the same defense twice. I never had any idea how to block them. All we did was block down, solid to the inside, block their backs to the outside, and I let Randall Cunningham throw the football to our split receivers. That's the only thing. It, it's just impossible to figure out. They ran 50 defenses. And there's... <laughs> That, really, and I don't even know how he called them. I really don't have any idea how he called all these defenses. Now, I'm not saying to go to that extreme, but I'm saying you've got to have fun. You can't have these guys go on the field again and say, oh, my gosh, I hope this doesn't happen again. And if it starts happening, they say, oh, my gosh, it's gonna do it. we're going to lose the game again. You can't. You've got to change. You've got to change something to give these kids some hope and some thoughts that, hey, you know what? We've got something new now. We're going to have fun. Go back and play a basic thing or do some things you did in high school that these kids know how to do, and you'll see these kids come around. So I don't think it's too late to change. I know darn well I'd be changing. I'd be having fun with the kids and doing it too. All right. Well, Coach, always good stuff. Thank you very much for uh, coming on and joining us and talking about the the game. Hopefully there's some uh, better things (laughs) to talk about next week. Uh, USC plays Cal on Saturday, then they have a bye week before they host Oregon. But, Coach, thanks again for joining us, and we'll uh, talk to you again next week. Ryan, thank you very much. And for all of our callers out there, we really appreciate you calling in and asking us these questions. And as we said, it's just our opinion, uh, and everyone has opinions, and I enjoy at least uh, expressing mine to you. Thank you, Ryan. All right, thank you, Coach. And we'll be back in 30 seconds. Going to talk some more football with Dan Weber. Meet us on the other side of the break for more of the Peristyle Podcast. Tickets, tickets, tickets. SC Tickets is your concert, sports, and theater ticket source. We have the tickets you need to any event worldwide. Football tickets are now available. Call SC Tickets now at 1-800-888-7287. 1-800-888-7287. That's 1-800-888-7287. Or visit us on the web at sctickets.com. SC Tickets, concerts, sports, and theater. We now return to the Peristyle Podcast and your host, Ryan Abraham. Welcome back to the Peristyle Podcast. We are joined by uscfootball.com beat writer Dan Weber. Dan, how you doing, man? Hey, pretty good. Not too bad. We'll see. Uh... Every week's a, a new, uh, interesting challenge. A lot of interesting challenges for this team. Uh, two last play losses in a row, two weeks. I, th- I think Lane Kiffin said they would had four in like 100 years, and they had two yeah, in the seven days. Yeah, history. I mean, that's one of those things you can't research quickly, uh, you know, on the game site. I mean, you're going back to 100 and, uh, you know, some years and like 1,400 games or whatever it is. But uh, Tim, obviously, Tessalone did the research uh, over the weekend, and uh, it's happened four times in more than a century. They've lost on the last play, and now they lose twice in seven days. It's, it's you know, again, never happened before, never even close. It's, it's just hard to even imagine. Yeah, tough pill to swallow for the USC fans and the coaching staff and stuff. But obviously, uh, you know, the winnable game against this uh, this weekend against Cal 
We do have a bunch of questions, though. I wanted to get to some of those if we could. Uh, okay, G- I mean, this is the thing. It's hard to think about. They are two plays away, one in each game, from being 6-0 and and probably ranked, I don't know, 12th, something like that, 10th. And then everybody's saying what a great success story they are. One play in each game. If they make one more play on defense in each game, they're one of the great college football stories in the country this year. Yeah, that's true. Very, very yeah. close. Um, all right. Well, here's a – so JC wanted to know on the Chris Gallipo penalty in the Stanford game, if the whistle was not blown, do you think it would have still been a penalty? And it looked like it kind of hit him in the in the head area, so probably was. I but. think it would have been because of the distance that he ran. And, uh, you know, Shane Horton had the guy wrapped, but he had him up, and the guy wasn't going down. Uh, I think if the whistle wouldn't have blown, I think he still was in danger with the blow up, uh, you know, in the head and the face mask. Yeah, I, I, it was so open. Pac-10 officials... Uh, we can't say anything else about them other than they're weak. Uh, they're really weak. They don't have a lot of confidence. And if you do something out in the middle of where everybody's watching you and you have a USC uniform on, they're going to throw a flag. You know? So, yes, it would have been a penalty, I believe. All right. Um, he also wanted to, Jesse also wanted to know, I mean, you had a great piece that went up yesterday um, about Lane Kiffin waiting for the Pac-10. Actually, that's a, it's a free story. It was a premium story we first put up. I made it free so more people could kind of read it over. So I would definitely go to uscfootball.com and look for USC waiting for Pac-10. Dan Weber's great piece on the, uh, how, you know, the, we talked about the clock a little bit before in the last segment and the Stanford officiating. But uh, he wants to know, can anything actually be done if we involve Pat Hayden and Larry Scott to fix the, the inconsistency in the officiating? I don't know. I mean, it's a problem. It's so ingrained in the Pac-10. I mean, these are guys that have been refereeing, you know, or officiating for decades. And if you go back and look at the penalty trends, nobody's done anything about this. Certainly, you know, the entire Pete Carroll era, you know, where USC was, uh, USC's opponents were dead last every year, year after year after year, with two slight exceptions. Uh, in the number of penalties called on them. It's so consistent pattern that if you play USC, you're going to get way fewer penalties than you normally get. And it can't be any other reason other than some sort of bias. And it's been allowed to exist. Nothing's happened to those officials for doing it. How do you come down on them now and say, you know, they, they killed the officials who made one mistake uh, in the Virginia game for USC, uh, missed the, the the call on the fake uh, punt block, and they got it wrong. They suspended them. They, you know, in effect, fined them by you know, taking away a game check. They uh, identified them. They just killed them. Uh, what do you do? They made more of those mistakes. They made probably seven of those mistakes in the last minute and ten seconds at Stanford. Now what do you do to those guys? You know? I don't know what you do to them. Uh, I think the Pac-10 has got a problem. I was there uh, 18 months ago. Uh, the BCS meetings were in Pasadena, and I covered them for the Associated Press, and Larry Scott had just been named as commissioner. And he, after the meeting, said, uh, you know, I'd like to get together with some of you guys totally off the record uh, and talk about the Pac-10. He said, you know, I'm just getting here. I don't know much of anything. Literally, his first question to us was, what's wrong with our officiating? Football, basketball, I said, how much time do you have? You know, I mean, I don't know. Uh, He was thinking about it. He knew about it. It does not look like he's done anything about it. Now, he's had a lot of other things on his plate. They brought in, believe it or not, the guy that's overseeing the Pac-10 officials is a Harvard lawyer. Uh, guy that was the Kansas City Chiefs um, uh, general counsel, uh, UMass grad and a Harvard law grad, is now running the Pac-10 football officials. The, the, uh, and the fellow who's actually nominally the director of the officials is uh, Dave Kataya. He's a full-time police chief of Martinez, California. And I know, you know, when you call Dave up, that you very often get him you know, at work. 
Uh, I'm not sure. I, I think that Pac-10 has to make this a much higher priority uh, officiating in both football and basketball, and I haven't seen that yet. And, you know, here they are now. What are we, Wednesday? Uh, we still haven't gotten an answer. Lane hasn't gotten an answer. USC hasn't gotten an answer. We haven't gotten an answer. I'm not sure they know what to do. What do you do? I mean, there was uh, manipulation going on. Every single mistake basically made in the last, um, you know, minute and 20 seconds, minute and 10 seconds. Every single mistake was made in favor of Stanford. Every single mistake was made against USC. I mean, Stanford essentially had two major penalties not called on their last drive. You know, the, the, the penalty on Gallipo was deserved, but Stanford had two, a holding and a late hit, and uh, neither called. Uh, plus all the clock uh, manipulations that all were in Stanford's favor. You know, if you said, well, the guy just, you know, doesn't know the rules, he's sleeping, he uh, wasn't paying attention, blah, blah, blah. You'd think he'd make one mistake maybe in favor of somebody other than Stanford. But no, he didn't. When it was running, it was uh, running at the very end when he was trying to run the clock down so that there would be no time left. Uh, or when he was holding the clock, he was holding it to give Stanford more time on their drive. I mean, it was just, just blatant and obvious, and something has to be done. But but what can the Pac-10 do? I don't know. Uh, you know, can they send a, a clock operator, make them part of the uh, officiating crew? That costs more money. Uh, but there are you know, other conferences. I remember when I covered the SEC, they would not allow a hometown guy to run the clock. They brought a clock operator who you know, was in his official outfit on the sideline, part of the team, and they ran the clock with an official uh, you know, part of the uh, officiating crew. Uh, and he was an independent uh, guy, not just some local guy who lives in the neighborhood, and they bring him in to run the clock for the game. Uh, so... Would the Pac-10 do that? Probably they should, but they haven't been willing to spend the money over the years to uh, to do it right. But uh, maybe this will help. We'll see. All right. Well, let's. Uh, let's thanks, JC, for those questions. We have uh, Coach Willie who likes to come in and write in uh, on some different scheme stuff. He wanted to know about the linebackers and some of what their basic reads are. They never seem to fill the gaps, and they're always out of position to make to making routine plays Stanford's first TD drive. No one covered the slot. Um, he felt the same thing kind of was happening last year. What do you think about the, you know, the linebackers and assignments and things I, like that? I, yeah. I mean, when you zero in on them, if you decide you want to watch, we were talking about this and some of us have done this, you know, this year from time to time where we just say, we can't even begin to imagine what their reads are when we see where they end up on a particular play. And we know, you know, what the keys were with the play. We know who was going where, and they seem to go opposite. And I can't give you an answer. I wish I could. I, I don't know what I'm seeing. And when I talk to the players and I talk to the coaches, it all doesn't fit together. Uh, we hear, you know, guys have good instincts, or we hear, you know, uh, they're doing, you know, a decent job of what we want them to do. And you watch them play after play after play, you know, and they don't seem to fill the gaps, and they don't seem to have any kind of a natural reaction uh, that gets them into the flow of the play. And, it, and, and, you know, just very often they're not in the play at all. I mean, you see, uh, uh, you see guys who look like they're going to emphasize, uh, you know, coverage on this particular play, and they get beat, you know, when they, they don't have any. For example, you'll see a linebacker go with a receiver, into an area and you'll see the defensive end come down and now you've got no contain at all, you know, for a quarterback who runs some kind of a play action and uh, he's out there, you know, on the edge and there's nobody in front of him. And I think it's the most puzzling question of all is, is what are the secondary guys? What are the secondary guys? What are the ends? What are the linebackers keys? What are they reading? And why do they seem to often end up not in the play? Uh, it's, it's extremely puzzling. Uh, and we really haven't gotten good answers. Uh, so we're not in the film sessions. You wish you were. You don't almost know what you, you watch the game. And you actually don't know what you're thinking. Uh, because it, not, it doesn't make a lot of sense what we're seeing uh, 
you know, you, you think, well, if that's what's supposed to be happening, how how does anyone think that particular defense is, is potentially can work? Uh, so it's frustrating, but his question, you know, Coach Willie's question is not any different from the ones we've had all year, and the answers haven't been forthcoming. I wish I I wish I could do a better job on that, but. <laughs> Well, he also I, shares there's another. Just, there's nothing more to say. It's un, it's unbelievable. I mean, it just doesn't look like they they can make plays out of this defense right now. They just seem either they're not they're not reading it, you know, reading their keys properly, and they're not reacting, or they're spending way too much time trying to get the key and get the read, and by that time the play is is past them or over. Uh, you know, it, it, it could be the situation where there's been a whole lot of coaching going on and a whole lot of teaching going on, but there hasn't been much learning. This might not have been the the, the group to have to do some adjusting to. Um, uh, and it's not exactly a new way of looking at I mean, looking at things, it's not that removed at all from what they were doing, you know, all the years with Pete. Yeah. I mean, having four brand-new secondary guys doesn't help. Sure. If, they, if you had asked your secondary with four seniors, I think just by being four seniors, no matter what they did, they would be more in place and more able to tackle in space. Having uh, a brand-new middle linebacker, you know, I'm not sure. Maybe you can't do that uh, move, no matter how talented physically, uh, how smart a kid is. There may not be a way that you can move a kid from uh, defensive end with his hand on the ground one year to your starting middle linebacker calling all the signals and all that the next year. That may not, at this level of college football, that may not be possible. Uh, that's, I know. Yeah. I, other than that, I don't know what to say. You've got two, you know, really veteran senior linebackers on the outside. Captains, and, team captains there. Uh, yeah, and that doesn't seem to have helped much. No. Uh, they well, don't. I mean, we see kids that are having trouble getting off blocks. We see kids that you know are late, you know, in pass coverage, and you know tend to commit penalties. We see kids that you know take the wrong uh, uh, pursuit angles, uh, overextend, you know, miss tackles in space. Uh, you name it, uh, they're having trouble doing it. There's just nothing that seems to be uh, that they're doing well, and it's. It's somewhat inexplicable. Uh, You know, when you look at the veteran coaches and guys who've done this, you know, there may be some adjustment from uh, the NFL to, um, uh, you know, to college football. I think the fact, I think the Pac-10 is far more, you know, for, you know, say Amani, who was in the SEC last year, I think that gives you a bad, you know, preparation for the Pac-10. I mean, they held, Tennessee held Alabama without a touchdown last year. The Pac-10 offenses are so much more sophisticated and and have so much high more high-powered run threat uh, run pass threats at quarterback, and this that defense was never set up for the NFL. It was never set up for a run threat quarterback. You just didn't see any of those guys in the NFL. Now you get in the Pac-10 and you you know you play Jake Locker one week and Andrew Luck the next week. You're that's a whole different animal and and. That defense was never set up to deal with uh, a quarterback uh, who could really, a really athletic quarterback who could hurt you in a couple of different ways. And uh, then you've got the, the problem of the, uh, uh, the wide hash marks in college football. You've always got a wide side of the field, uh, unlike the NFL where the hash marks are pretty much in the middle and the field's the same every play. Uh, and that, you know, puts kids in space that you don't have to deal with coming out of the NFL. Uh, and, and that's a difficult issue when you've got really good athletes and, and really good coaches who can exploit the whole issue of space. Uh, and, and they do, and they always have in the Pac-10. It's, it's been in a different place offensively than much of the rest of the country. And, uh, and I think it's been a, a giant adjustment. Uh, and this is probably the worst year to have to adjust to the Pac-10 with all the the talented quarterbacks and, uh, and, you know, high powered offenses. All right. Well, he also had another point and I, I, people have brought this up before. Maybe you can make a quick comment on this. Um, 
He wants to know, is it possible to make suggestions to the coaching staff, email, phone messages, whatever? Once again, would someone tell the defensive coaches to maintain outside contain and stay home when the flow goes away? Cal will take advantage of this obvious neglect. I, I get people saying that a lot. Um, hey, I yeah, want to tell I the mean, coaches something. They have keys, for example, of what they want the defensive ends to do. If a play goes here, you know, they want them coming down on the backside, for example. Well, you know, if it turns out to be it's a play action, you know, uh, you know, quarterback boot uh, rollout some kind, you know, all of a sudden you've got everybody going down from the backside, you know, uh, and there's nobody left, you know, if uh, if you got your outside linebacker running with a, you know, receiver and coverage, and you've got uh, your defensive end coming down, you know, uh, on the backside gap there, there's nobody left, and very often, yeah, the Pac-10 coaches will see that and and exploit it and uh yeah i would uh you know send your suggestions in i mean uh, you know we talked on the, the next story i'm writing is uh both you know the two veterans monty on as the coach and Cherise wright as the uh secondary guy uh, you know what we were talking to him last night after practice and how do you get this right you know what do you do you know how do you make it better where does USC go from here on defense? You know, how do you, and, and you don't hear any kind of uh, major changes. You hear just, you know, Sharice will say, uh, guys have to stop thinking and start making plays. And we're not making plays. We're out there thinking. Uh, but the question is, six games into the season, why are you having to spend all this time thinking? Why haven't you been freed up to make plays in this defense? That, to me, seems to be the biggest issue of all. Why hasn't this defense freed them in order to make plays? There are guys there that can make plays. It's not like they don't have any, any talent at all. There's not a lot of depth, but you would think they've got enough guys who can make plays, and they're not making plays. I agree. And that's that. the question. Why that's, a, not? that's kind of a follow-up question. We have David writing in, and uh, he wants to know for you, Dan, specifically, not what you think the coaches believe, but what you think should happen, since the scheme probably isn't going to change, would you make any personnel moves to improve better defensive performance? I don't know. I mean, we were thinking one of the, one of the possible personnel moves was just to get more athleticism and uh, and more, you know, quickness at, say, defensive end, somebody who could react in space a little better. And we're thinking, you know, is it time to, as raw as he might be, to, you know, give – a guy like a Christian Thomas, some spot duty surprise. Some I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that they haven't done spot duty with more guys. And, you know, I'm talking maybe one play, you know, every couple of series or whatever. And they haven't done that. And then yesterday, you know, they open up and here's Christian Thomas uh, back at tight end. So we thought, well, I guess the chances of him coming in and helping him out at defensive end. Uh, I mean, you know, Nick Perry's playing with, Great courage and effort, but he's got you know that that sprained ankle is probably not going to get better all year. And as the games go on, every day you know every game, the longer you know the game goes on, the more you know you seem really kind of favoring that ankle. And you think, well, could you put somebody in there with a little more quicker? You know, I mean, would you be better off saying, uh, you know, Devon, you're an absolute, you know, potential All-American as a defensive end. Maybe we should try to get out of you everything we can get out of you as a defensive end, and we'll figure out this middle linebacker somehow. Uh, I'd probably have done some of those things, yeah. I probably would have made some position switches, and and I probably wouldn't have stuck with, uh, with it the way they have uh, at this point. Uh, you know whether that's uh, that's feasible or not. I I probably would have thought about um, uh, making some of those changes. Yeah, I would have. I would have. I don't think they have anything to lose by switching personnel around and trying to uh, see if somebody's a better fit somewhere else. Or let's say you get really, really say all Pac-10 caliber defensive end play from Devon Kennard. Uh, does that improve the defense enough that no matter what you do at middle linebacker to replace him? you've improved the team. So that would have probably been some of the ways I'd have gone. All right. I, I'd have made some switches. Okay. Yeah. I think a lot of people <laughs> make sense. Um, last one we have, Dan. Evan 
wants to know, I have a question for you guys that actually has nothing to do with the game versus Stanford. Uh, USC appealed the NCAA sanctions. When will we know if NC, if the NCAA accepts or denies USC's appeal? And just to let you know, Dan, I was on a little panel last night, USC at a sports uh, business association meeting, and I was one of the uh, the speakers there, one of the guest uh, panelists or whatever, and Tim Teslone was one of the panelists as well, the USC Sports Information Director. Um, I mean, it looks like they'll probably uh, you know, hear it in, in November or kind of go over it when the appeals committee meets in November. Tim did, said that they didn't expect to hear something until the spring. So that's, the, that's at least what Tim was saying. I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on it. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that's right. I, I think uh, we're seeing a mini version of that this week from the Pac-10 about the officials. Uh, I don't think the NCAA even knows what to do either because the whole situation has been vastly complicated by – uh, all the agent uh, player interactions in the Southeastern Conference and the ACC uh, that we that have have been revealed, and now you've got this new book out that you know everybody was talking about yesterday. The confessions of that uh, agent from Los Angeles and all the players that he paid over the years, and uh, you know it's uh, and then you read the front page of the NCA, you know the Committee on Infractions, totally bogus. Uh, report about USC where they defend the standard of amateurism and then you read you know all the things that have been happening since that report came out and you realize the report is just it's just it's ridiculous and uh, and, and and embarrassing to the NCA and undefend you know they can't defend it and uh, so what are they going to do I, I think the more time they have to figure out what they do I mean they can probably stand now and say Look at what USC is doing. They've got 15 people in compliance, and they've got the most high-powered compliance operation in America. You know, the NCA. You know, we win. Uh, we can take back, you know, the sanctions the way USC's asked us to. Uh, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, USC's certainly given them a chance now to do that. I get the sense from USC that maybe they think you know that will work. There are other people though at USC that absolutely don't trust the NCA to do the right thing here, that the NCA has backed themselves into a corner just the same way people don't trust the Pac-10 to do the right thing, even though they know what the right thing to do is and they've been putting it off and they should have done it, you know, a long time ago. So I don't, I don't know. I do think, though, they're not going to act right away. So I don't think uh, they're going to hear. I think Tim's timetable was probably a correct one that, you know, it'll be more like the spring, which will, you know, give USC a chance to, uh, you know, to give out however many, you know, the maximum scholarship number where the people decide that's uh, 25 for this year um, and with the early entries and all that, uh, you know, I think if I'm the NCA and I'm looking at the numbers USC has right now and I'm thinking, you know, did we go overboard in terms of the uh, uh, allowing kids, you know, the, the get-out-of-jail-free transfer card for juniors and seniors at any time to any place? Uh, on top of the sanctions, you know, are we actually putting the USC players, you know, in, in, at risk of, you know, injury and, and, and the kinds of things that the NCAA supposedly, you know, in the name of, you know, student athletes, uh, if, you, if you ever replay the tape of Paul D. in the press conference, it's embarrassing and, uh, to the NCAA to have a guy kind of laughing about, you know, what, what the sanctions would do to USC's numbers. Uh, when you consider that the reality there is kids that were in grade school when whatever happened happened uh, could be now being injured on the football field because the USC just doesn't have enough numbers. And uh, I think it's just uh, uh, a little bit embarrassing for the NCAA to have to defend that. So I would think they'd probably try to figure out a way to get out of that, but I don't think they're going to, you know, that's going to happen real quickly. Uh, so I think that spring timetable is probably correct. All right. And then actually, I lied, Dan. We have one really quick last thing. Sorry, <laughs> Kevin. Um, okay. He sent this in last week, and I, we didn't get a chance to get to it. Um, he wanted to know, do you think that USC needs a new stadium? Uh, it doesn't seem like the Coliseum's a hostile environment like Odson Stadium is. I know it's a historic stadium and all, but a new stadium would be good. That's Kevin's opinion. What do you think about that USC playing somewhere else? Well, I think the only option that you would ever consider would be if, Something happens with an NFL stadium, 
somewhere in the area of, you know, the whole Staples Center, you know, environs that that turned into such a, you know, entertainment, sports and entertainment mecca that would be almost on campus. Uh, Otherwise, you would think it would be better invested. I mean, basically, you would think with the state of California now actually in the business of selling state property, uh, I think an uh, Irvine company just got control of 24 state buildings uh, and is going to manage them. My preference would be for uh, USC to be able to acquire the Coliseum uh, as part of the campus and for USC then to be able to make the, uh, uh, the choices in terms of, you know, upgrades and private boxes and, uh, you know, there's a way you could put Opposite the press box, for example, you could build a separate uh, uh, facility that they've done in a lot of places where they really enlarge the stadiums, where it would be a uh, comparable uh, area for private suites and that. You'd probably need an elevator to take it up to, you know, the fifth or sixth level or whatever. But uh, you could use something like that as a, uh, you know, as a way of raising money for, for uh you know, re uh, you know refitting the entire Coliseum. I just think the Coliseum is is you know in some ways it's the most historic stadium in the history of the world. When you look at you know the only place that's had two you know uh, Olympic games and two you know Major League Baseball teams and two NFL teams and USC and UCLA play there and it's probably uh, some of the most historic track meets in the history of the world and all of that kind of thing. And it's right on USC's campus essentially, right across the street. So I think, you know, to me, redoing the Coliseum would always be the number one choice, and having USC actually uh, acquire the Coliseum and managing the Coliseum would be, would be my choice, uh, and using that as a fundraiser uh, to, uh, to add the kind of, uh, you know, special facilities and to, to rework, uh, you know, the location exactly of the state of the uh, end zone seats and things like that. You know, maybe you have to lower the field even more in order to get some better sight lines. Uh, but, uh, but that would be my choice would be doing the Coliseum. I just don't think they can give up. The Coliseum is too identifiable and I just don't think you could ever have enough money you know, to build something uh, that would even be remotely comparable. That would be my call. Cool. I agree with you, Dan. All right. Well, hey, thanks for uh, all the responses. I know there was a lot of questions to get to. Uh, you know, hopefully there'll be some more positive questions next week after the uh, Cal game heading into the bye week. But thanks again, Dan, for joining us. Oh, enjoyed it. Thanks, Ryan. All right. Everyone yeah. else will be back in a couple seconds. We're going to talk a little bit more USC football recruiting. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Peristyle Podcast from Los Angeles, California. Hey, USC Trojan fans, to get into the huddle of your Southern Cal Trojans, log on to uscfootball.com today for all the latest in Trojan football, basketball, and recruiting news. Ryan Abraham will give you an in-depth analysis, recruiting updates, and will answer your questions every day on the message board. So for all the latest in team and recruiting news on your USC Trojans, check out uscfootball.com, the officially licensed Southern Cal site of the Rivals.com network. It's time to get back to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. We are back on the Peristyle Podcast. You can check us out, peristylepodcast.com. And I forgot to mention, if you have questions for us, drop us an email, podcast at uscfootball.com, or call us, 206-888-6755. Leave us a voicemail. We can play your voicemail here on the podcast. Uh, We didn't get to track down Gerard this week, so I'll try to answer some of the recruiting questions for you. We had a few of them come in. I wanted to get to a few of those, so we do talk a little bit of recruiting. But obviously, when... USC loses a game like they have the last couple of weeks. That's going to be where most of the questions and stuff are coming from heading into that. But uh, let's get to a question on voicemail. You can hear this one from Tom. Here you go. Hello, Ryan. This is Tom from Arkansas. I really appreciate your show. I was wondering, since we're so low on scholarship players this year and that minus 10 scholarship limit starts kicking in next season, is USC going to raid the junior college ranks after the end of this fall semester and, and bring guys in 
for the spring semester on campus who will will count towards this year's scholarship limit instead of next year when the minus 10 starts. Uh, seems like that would be a great idea. Are we going to be doing that? Uh, thanks for the information. Goodbye. All right. Well, thank you for very much for that question, Tom, coming in. And Gerard, we've, we've talked to Gerard about this a few times before, and there's challenges. I mean, there's challenges getting high school players to graduate early, and uh, that's obviously would be a big thing coming for USC right now. If you get someone to graduate early, they can enroll in January and count towards the class of 2010. Same thing with junior college guys. Uh, you know, right now you want to try to get them to to be in a position where they can graduate and be and come on campus. So I know Gerard said that it's, it's not always easy to do to get all the requirements and everything set up that would allow them to get into USC. So there's a challenge there. Um, I, I do think too, though, when you're talking about JC guys, um, they they can't really have a a bad recruiting day. You know, they, if they if they get a couple guys that are going to flunk out or transfer out or things like that, that's really going to hurt um, with the reduced number of scholarships that they have now. And some of the guys from JC ranks that can be questionable. I mean, they might have questionable grades coming out of high school and things like that. So I think they're going to take an extra watchful eye looking at some of those guys. Now, yes, they can have guys come in and contribute right away. So I think that's important if you can get some guys along those lines to do that. Uh, but all the ducks pretty much have to be in a row. So it's just harder. I think the whole process is harder. And we saw with Charles Burks committing this week that he was a guy USC wanted to get in early, you know, and he's coming from a school district that they don't want their kids to graduate early because it leaves empty seats and it costs the, the school money. And, you know, potentially it could have cost this kid a $250,000 scholarship to USC. But, um, you know, it looked, to, you know, to the, you know, if you read the story, Gerard put a great story up this week about, about um, Charles and him coming in there. And, you know, he basically found out that he wasn't going to be able to graduate early, told the coaches. The coaches were like, you know, it doesn't matter. We want you to be a Trojan. They offered him a, a regular scholarship offer. He could count towards the class of 2011. You know, he accepted it right away. He wanted to be a Trojan. So I think some of those things, you know, cases are going to work out. They'll try and do whatever they can to get extra guys in for this class of 2010. Anything they can count there because they still have eight, nine, ten rides or something like that for uh, that class. Um, and, of course, it's really going to depend on what happens with the, the scholarship sanctions, the appeals, uh, what's going on. We talked in the last segment. You might not hear about it until March or, or, or April, sometime in the spring. What does that mean for February? How many guys can USC sign? Will the NCAA say, hey, we're going to delay this? There's a, there's a lot of different options that are kind of on the table. And it does look like right now, and people have talked about this a lot on the Peristyle, what was going on. It looks like USC is kind of recruiting more towards, they think they're going to get more than 15 uh, in this class of 2011. Uh, unless they have, there might, might be some more guys that they want to try and get in early. I think, you know, there's a lot of different options there, but uh, we're kind of playing it by ear. And I think the coaching staff, they're trying to recruit without knowing uh, all the facts. And uh, I think it makes it even more difficult, but they do have such a great staff put together for recruiting. I think you're going to see, I think you're going to see some good things. I mean, he's, Lane Kiffin's proven his worth, and you know, having a guy like Ed Orgeron on there, uh, you know, obviously helps as well. Uh, let's see. So we have a question. In the years past, California prospects have worked their tails off to receive a coveted USC football scholarship, only to see them go to out-of-state prospects. With scholarship reductions and a lack of depth, do you think this staff will focus on local kids that are locks to receive commitments for, instead of waiting on signing data? to miss out on state kids. And I, I think the, the, the overall attitude of the staff and where they're going to rec recruit locally is changing. I think they didn't focus locally last year because they didn't know the local scene last year. They were coming in, you know, most of the guys coming in from Tennessee. Now I think it looks like there's a lot more of a local focus. Um, you know, Pete Carroll did some really great things, but he did under recruit some of those classes. He was getting 18 or 19 guys in some of those classes and, and, and leaving some of those local kids on the table that, you know, would end up at, at Cal or Oregon or Boise state, things like that. Uh, it looks like Lane Kiffin and the staff are going to try to, to get some more of those guys, guys that, um, that really are scratch and claw guys. And they're, they're going to try to get on the field and, and work really hard and, um, and I, I think the staff likes a lot of those guys. Now, it, it, the hard part is it'd been great if they had a, a full 
a bevy of scholarships to offer. If they had 25 scholarships to offer, uh, Pete Carroll, you know, really did look after those first rounder guys. They're trying to get a guy out of state that could be a NFL first round draft pick. And I think a lot of the focus was on that and maybe not as much focus on some of the, the role player guys that you can get locally, these hard, you know, harder working kids that would just love to go to USC no matter what. So now there's not as much room there. So they still have to figure out some kind of balance where you're going to bring in the super five-star guys, the DeAnthony Thomases or the George Farmers and things like that. You leave room for those, but then also get some of the, the harder working guys too. And maybe they're only a three-star guy, but they're kind of a diamond in the rough sort of thing. If you can even have that now with so much going on recruiting, we, we know so much about all these kids. But I, so I do think, you know, to answer the question, I do think that the shift is going to change a little bit. And, you know, like I said before, the game is changing all the time because they're not exactly sure what the numbers are going to be that they're recruiting towards. I think they, they pick something and they have an idea and they're recruiting towards that. But any day the NCAA could come back and, and change that and uh, change the focus. And, uh, you know, it makes it hard. It, it's a challenging. It's for the staff to do that. But I do think you're going to see some guys, local guys that they're going to offer and uh, and, and get guys that, just really want to be at USC. They feel that they're not going to be risk guys. They feel that they can contribute and get on the field. And all of that, I think, you know, plays into the fact that you can't really miss on dudes anymore because there's just not that much room. There's not much wiggle room there if you do miss on guys. And then uh, one last one on recruiting we got from David. And he wants to know if he wants uh, us to assess the overall state of recruiting in light of the losses and the sanctions. You see a major change in the way kids look at USC um, right now. And who's the biggest challenger for Farmer? George, that's George Farmer out of Sarah High School. I, I do think USC is the leader there. Um, biggest challenger, I don't know. I mean, it would it would be out of state. I don't think it would be any place else. I mean, at least locally. He's not going to be going to UCLA. You can kind of hear that from talking to him and his family and stuff. So it'll either be stay local, go to USC, or he's going to go ship off somewhere else. But I, I would, if I had to bet right now, I'd say that George Farmer is going to stay locally. As far as the state of uh, recruiting, we had a, that panel last night that we were talking to, and people were kind of asking about that. Um, and I almost had, I had an argument, not an argument, but just a discussion with Tim Tessalone on what was going on, uh, you know, why people come to recruiting. And he was pointing to this mural up on the wall and extending the guys to the NFL. And I still think that, there's a lot of positives that you can sell at USC and every kid's different. You know, there's kids that want to come for playing time. There's kids that want to come because the team's number one in the country. There's kids that want to come because the team's not number one in the country and they're working their way to get their way back up. So I think there's always something you can sell. The important thing that USC fans should know is yeah, they're still putting dudes in the NFL. They're still on TV all the time. They're still getting a lot of media coverage. A lot of the things that made you know, they're still in LA. It's still part of this whole Hollywood kind of, feel here and the fact of all, all those things i think can be positive not for every recruit but for a lot of different recruits there um it's just going to be more of a challenge not knowing how many scholarships you can bring in or not being able to miss on guys but i do think there's still going to be a major appeal there and you're going to get a different kind of recruit where maybe it's someone that you know that was worried about playing time didn't come to usc before they went somewhere else uh and now there's like, well, hey, there's a, there's you see a guy like Robert Woods coming in and getting 200 yards as a true freshman right away. If you're a, a linebacker or a defensive tackle, you're seeing a position that is is fairly thin, knowing that hey, if I come in and play well, I'm going to be able to get in there and get on the field. So you know, the, every door that closes, there's another one that opens. It's going to be challenging for sure, but there's still a lot of parts of this program you can sell, and the. The facts are that over the last decade, USC has been a dominant program on the West Coast, and a lot of the kids that have grown up watching college football, and that's what they've seen. You know, Now, if, if USC goes 10 years with mediocre records, then those kids are not going to really remember what was going on. But fresh in their memories are Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush and, and those guys. I mean, that's what they kind of grew up when they are playing Pop Warner and, and, and going in their high school football and stuff. They saw USC be dominant. They saw USC go to seven straight uh, BCS bowl games and that I mean I, I think that's what's kind of fresh in their minds but the fact that USC even when they struggled last year you're still putting dudes in the NFL um, you're still getting on TV all the time you're still getting a lot of media coverage and there's a lot of attention on this program so it, it that could change but it would take years I think for it to t- kind of reverse that sort of trend so USC was kind of mediocre and stuff throughout the 90s and eight, you know up and down whatever but 
Pete Carroll, you can criticize him all you want, but he did change the way the program was run. And I think the perception of the program now with sanctions and stuff, that's kind of a cloud hanging over there. But when it comes to kids, we, so many kids that we've talked to, it doesn't seem to be a real big issue. You know, no one transferred out because they couldn't go to a bowl game, you know, and, you know, so there's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. USC will definitely get through it. I think they'll survive in recruiting, but the recruiting will be just a little bit different than kind of what you saw over the past couple of years. Well, hopefully that answered your question, David, and we got to listen talk a little bit of recruiting this week. Uh, we'll try to get Gerard on again, especially the bye week. So after uh, the Cal game, USC has a bye week. So we'll try to focus a little bit more on recruiting on the podcast then. But thank you very much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. We love all the questions and comments you guys send. And people come up and talk to Coach or Dan or myself or whoever about listening to the podcast. So we really enjoy it. You know, It's been fun. We've been doing it like two and a half years or so now. And hopefully it'll keep growing. Thanks very much for tuning in. And we'll talk to you all next week. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. Music